You guys ready to have a CNF in good time? This is the Hashtag CNF Podcast. I'm your host, Brendan O'Mara. This is where we talk to artists, uh, writers, and filmmakers, you name it, about creating works of narrative nonfiction. And today, we have Kim Kankowitz, who won Creative Nonfiction's essay contest for issue 62, themed Joy. It won the best essay prize, and it's damn good. It's called Rumors of Lost Stars. We'll get to that most certainly very, very soon. A couple of housekeeping things. As you all know, I like to try to get the subscription stuff out of the way, so please subscribe on iTunes and Google Play Music if you're an Androider. I'm an Androider, so it's nice to see the old hashtag up on the Google Play Music store. So Kim Kankowitz, where to start? She is a Seattle area writer and editor. She writes essays, articles, and reviews for publications that include Brain, Child, Salon, Pacific Standard, Colorado Review, McSweeney's Internet Tendency, and Full Grown People. Her work has also been anthologized in Full Grown People's Greatest Hits. So we're dealing with a heavy hitter, hitter, heavy hitter here. So without uh, further ado, this is Kim Kankowitz, and I started by asking her what that moment was like when she won Creative Nonfiction's Essay Prize. Uh, so, I, in fact, I was Skyping um, some people at the University of Nebraska at Kearney for an article that I was researching, and I clicked on my email because I was about five minutes early, uh, read the announcement, burst into tears. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were video conferencing, so then I, I was a complete mess um, and thought that I may have imagined the <laughs> email. So throughout this conversation about a completely different topic with these people I was interviewing, I kept checking my email and (laughs) confirming that it said what I had indeed read. And um, so it was surreal um, and very encouraging because, as you know, um, you write in isolation and um, a rejection doesn't give you a lot of feedback. So, you know, I had submitted a different version of that essay to a couple of other places. And um, who knows if it was even worth revising at, at just based on a rejection, even an encouraging one, you don't know, you know, within the individual piece, what's working, what's not. And um, so it was, it was a surprise. It was a validation that, you know, I, I can keep working on something and it maybe is on the right track. And mm-hmm. um just that I had connected with somebody, I guess that's, that's the other thing about writing, um, personal essays. I don't know if anybody else cares and, um, you know, what, what I have to process in my own thinking and experience, does that matter to anybody else? Will that have meaning to anybody else? Not in an egocentric way, but you know, the reason I write is to make connections with other people. And so um, if it did that in some way, that's really encouraging. When you were drafting the essay and, and going through your uh, various you know, levels of uh, creation with it, like how mindful 
were you and are you of trying to connect to the reader on the other side of it that you may never meet? Or is that something you save for later in the process once you start like chipping at the marble? Yeah, um, so I start with that and then I revise with that. But while I'm writing, um, I get a little lost in the language that might be sort of a, a, you know, something that slows me down in my process. But while I'm writing, I'm uh, really focused on language and structure and not so much on audience. So um, I, I hope that I have an idea of that when I start working on the piece. And then when I have a draft, I start looking at that again. Do you have an ideal reader in mind when you're crafting an essay or some or something similar? Yeah, you know, um, I think someone who has some of my experience in common is probably what I'm what I'm picturing, it depends on the piece. Sometimes it's someone more um, like a parent figure, I guess. Um, sometimes someone younger than me. Sometimes, So it really depends on the, the thing that I'm writing. But um, often, like with this one, it was somebody who could find commonality with my particular experience. And how did you arrive at this essay, Rumors of Lost Stars? And how did you, how did you devise its structure around this, um, around these three stars, like Vega, Altair, and Deneb? Yeah. And maybe you can give a little oversight of what kind of just in a little graph about what the essay is about in, in your words, and then maybe then dive into the how you decided to uh, hang the structure around those stars. Sure. Okay. So the essay is set during a summer um, while I was still an undergraduate and was um, losing vision in my right eye. And at that point, um, I had pretty low vision in my left eye as well. So I was a teaching assistant at an astronomy camp that involved pretty much any night it was clear enough to see the stars, we would go um, stargazing. And it was an experience that felt, um, you know, I felt very separate from the the students that I was taking on these stargazing trips um, because I couldn't see what they could see. And that I had recently um, recovered or was in recovery from an eating disorder. So some of those feelings of being separate from and just, you know, it's at the age where you're you're kind of figuring out your identity and, and all of those things were converging. And so that was, I guess, probably one of the more profound experiences I'd had at the point when I originally started writing the essay, which was um, just a few years after that. And then that I finished it, submitted it a couple of places, um, just didn't really have a sense of what it was about, even for myself. And so it, it just sat for a long time without me going back to it until um, Creative Nonfiction had announced the joy theme. And I, I, I think that going back to this as I had been at the back of my mind um, for about a year before that, and I, I don't honestly know why, you know, what brought it back, uh, except that I'm, I'm very motivated by closure. So Anything that I've started at some point, it, you know, I want to come back around to it and and complete it. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
the theme just something clicked with it that I this is about joy. It's about an experience um, because during that summer there was one night that we went to a rural area and I didn't expect that this would be any different than any other night we went stargazing, but I was able to see the stars and it was a very joyful moment. Um, and so I then with the theme of joy uh, was able to look again at the meaning of that night within the context of that summer and what does that have to say about the experience of joy. Um, and so then when I started writing, um, I, I kind of gravitate toward threes anyway in, in structuring uh, even a, an individual sentence. And so it kind of jumped out right away just with what, you know, this draft that I had lying around that I went back to read that um, there were kind of three parts already. And so the stars in the summer triangle, which we definitely observed while we were um, doing our stargazing uh, because they it was during the summer, you know, so that's uh, just jumped out as a way to structure the essay. And then when that was there, it made it a lot easier. That must have been a very exciting moment for you just as an artist to to see that congruency, like you already had sort of that wireframe of your essay set up, but then to see such a cosmic alignment to, kind of, yeah. you know, literally in, in, in a sense that these three stars and the stories behind them actually just paired up so wonderfully with your own personal experience. I mean, you're, I mean, you're, you must've just started levitating when you, when you saw that congruency. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, I, I wrote, solid for like a Friday that I had the day off through really late, you know, it was probably Monday, like really late on Sunday night. Once I stumbled on that, um, it because it was so exciting. I just sat down and did the whole thing in a, in a weekend. And that's what's, what's really kind of inter interesting in, um, about, about how you, how how this essay came to be published in this issue of creative nonfiction was you had this you you essentially had this this nice locomotive but no tracks to guide it <laughs> and then when you when you got the focus when it was when someone put what it really was about in front of you it like honed the focus of the thing and it was able to take sort of get get in motion in that sense yeah. it, it's uh sometimes you know people write through it and then you start to figure out what it's about but it's almost like you wrote it and then weren't quite sure what it was about until an outside force kind of made you shoehorn it into something and it really allowed the thing to take flight. Yeah, very much that that's. And, and so I hope that happens again. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of pieces that I, I don't quite know what they're about. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there are plenty of theme things. And I, I imagine that it's, even if it's a bit of a stretch, I mean, maybe this essay could very, if they did like a, who knows, like a, the opposite, the opposite of joy, some sort of gr grief thing or a loss thing. I'm sure you could have found a way sure. to maneuver and manipulate it to fit that theme. So I guess things can be a bit amoebic, and that right. and they can uh and can can float and find a find a way and find a focus if you just kind of write to a certain prompt or a certain theme, and you can kind of make it what you want to make it. So when you were when you were writing it, what like what was your you said like when you, when you got the theme of it and um you kind of wrote it in a bit of a sprint um 
but what is what is your daily ritual like when you're sort of in that synthesis mode of creating something of this nature? Right. Um, so I do like to have a longer period to write. Um, getting up in the morning and writing for an hour, or something like that, doesn't typically work for me um, because I take a long time to to think, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and figure out where I am in the piece. And so what works best for me is either at night, I'm a parent. So after everyone is sleeping, um, I can stay up pretty late and get lost in a piece. Uh, so, you know, having quiet hours to do that, or I, I do generally write some every weekend, not, you know, quite the, <laughs> the extent of that, um, essay in this one in particular, but, but I do usually write for a number of hours straight on a weekend. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of writing to find, um, the thread and then writing around it and, um, playing with language. I'm very motivated by language, um, attentive to language and, finding phrases and where they fit. And, you know, so I think it's, it's kind of, um, I actually just heard a painter speak about her process and how she gets kind of lost in the painting and what, um, you know, brushstrokes and colors go where. And it sounded a lot like writing to me that you have this big piece and then all of the elements of it, um, kind of are, you know, you need time and space to figure out where they go and how they fit together. Yeah, that's that's it's great that you bring up uh, painter. A lot, a lot of times, I I like asking people uh, whether they be writers or filmmakers or whatever. Like, what other artistic media do you consume to help inform your vocation? And uh, because you can find a lot of those, you can find that inspiration in maybe music or painting that helps you become a stronger writer. And um, right. is that something you like to revisit elsewhere? Like. Uh, what what other things might you use to unplug from writing, but also help inform what you like to do? Yeah. Um, choral music for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of what I'm working on now is about choral music. Uh, but I think, um, the sound, because like I was saying about language, um, I write with my ear and there's a connection between the appeal of that to me and the appeal of choral music Um, but you know, as a participant and then being surrounded by the sound and the rhythm of what I write is, um, satisfying to, I I like the rhythm of writing. Um, and, and I find that in music too. So I, I can't write to music that is, um, too upbeat or, um, has lyrics that are too interesting because I, I, you know, can't really tune that out. I, I pay attention to that, but I do like writing to say something like, um, medieval or Renaissance music in Latin. If I, you know, can't really understand what they're saying. Um, yeah. and just the, the, the soothing sound of that and the different tones of that, um, are not distracting to me and, and seem like they sort of support what I'm trying to do. And what other writers or essayists helped inform 
yeah, your style and, you know, how, who were some of those influences that helped, helped you like come to the place where you're writing the type of work that rumors of lost stars has become like, who are some of those influences? Yeah. Um, so Brian Doyle and I'm, um, it's awesome that he's in this issue of creative nonfiction. It's yeah, crazy, right? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Like, um, and specifically him because, um, a lot of great writing is about really, really difficult stuff, especially personal writing. Um, and I appreciate that writing, but for whatever reason, I, um, am attempting a lot of times to write about something that in the end has kind of a redemptive quality or there's some sort of moment of elevation um, that sort of makes the difficult stuff beautiful in some way. And I think he does that really well. Um, one of the first things I remember reading of his was um, a brief essay, a brief excerpt from his book about now I'm going to just space on the title of it, but about his son's heart condition. And mm -hmm. there was a, an essay published in one of the best American essay series um, about the hummingbird heart and then elephant hearts. And it like kind of in this very brief essay um, contained a whole bunch of meaning. It was beautiful, but it was about a really difficult thing, his son's heart condition. And, then since reading, you know, some of his work, I find that quality of, of finding beauty in the, the things that are um, traumatic or difficult parts of the human experience. Um, yeah, so he, so he does that. Um, I really enjoy the lyrical quality of um, Sonia Livingston. I, she's, I, I didn't know much about her until fairly recently. I love her work um, because she pulls together many themes and sort of knowledge about different people and historical moments. And I love that too. Um, when I start writing something, everything I write is sort of about everything in the world when I start writing it and then <laughs> I rein it in somehow. Uh, but I love it when people manage to do that, you know, in, in some way that this piece is going to be about this one experience, but I'm also going to talk about, um, you know, the history of, um, the women's movement at the same time and, or this historical figure, you know, and, and somehow weave that in, in a way that makes sense. Yeah. Getting to your, your point about how, um, you know, Brian Doyle was able to, you know, take some you know, heavy topic, but you know, produce some sort, uh, some sort of you know that uplifting quality towards the end. Like in the third section of your essay, there were a couple sentences I had um I had underlined. You know, specifically, um, you know, as you're you know lo you know losing your your eyesight in your right eye, is like my ability to see the stars doesn't mean they are gone. And then towards the very end, you say like, what if joy is the momentary glimpse of a beauty we sense but can't always perceive. Uh -huh. And it's like this thing, like you're making lemonade out of lemons in, in this sense. And that's like going right to what you were saying about trying to end these things that are, that are a bit heavy in subject matter and giving them levity and saying like, well, this, I may be down, but I'm not out, so to speak. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you know what? It's really hard to do that now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in the last several months, you've probably experienced that too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 So that's made writing really challenging. If that's kind of part of my personal mission, what propels me as a writer, um, just the the climate right now is uh, not conducive to that. Yeah. Yeah, which is kind of serendipitous. That issue theme joy of unexpected brightness in the darkest times seemed to come out right, right after January twentieth. So it was kind right. of like it was like, all right, well, this can this gives us some some degree of hope that there are these wonderful stories that can lift us up and provide some of the that inspiration that we need when and let us know that it's out there and that it's yeah. not there is something beyond the the immediate despair. Yeah. So what is um what are what are some books or books that uh, book or books that you tend to reread the most if you if you are in fact one of the people who are rereaders of books? Yeah, you know I have to confess that I'm not <laughs> yeah. because um I like to read everything and and I always feel like there's more that I want to read and haven't read and I'm going to run out of time <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't typically reread book length work. I do reread essays. Um, and many of them are in anthologies. So best American, you know, I have those and reread work from those. Um, and I try to always be subscribing to a handful of literary journals and, you know, kind of vary which ones I'm subscribing to and then keep them on hand so I can reread um, the ones that stand out to me, I guess. And yeah. What are some of the lit journals you subscribe to? Um, currently I, I have creative nonfiction, um, the Georgia review, the normal school, um, ruminate. I like that one that has like, like I was talking about the redemptive quality. That one is overtly connected to faith. So there's, um, a lot of times a strain of that in their work. Um, I'm peeking back at my <laughs> where mm-hmm. I'm right now. Um, Under the Gum Tree, I'm, I have that, and I think that's all I'm subscribing to currently. I have the Missouri Review. I like that journal, and I have subscribed to that in the past. Um, yeah. And, and what are some essays that you reread a lot? Um, I, re- I reread a lot of Rebecca Solnitz, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm not necessarily really writing like her, but, um, she's, they're just so idea rich and you kind of have to reread to <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, get what you didn't get the first time. And what was, um, what was the moment you knew that you wanted to be a writer? As soon as I could read. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's all I really ever wanted to be. And so I became everything else. And then, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, as a kid, um, I remember the first book I read was uh, a Nancy Drew book and high literary quality that it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, I just knew that I wanted to do that, you know, create that experience for other people because reading was my favorite thing to do as a kid. And, um, yeah, I just, I wanted to be part of the group of people who made that happen. Did you, as a little kid, did you write your own Nancy Drew mysteries? 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My friend and I enacted some, too. And <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I very imitative kinds of writing. My dad had a typewriter at home, and so I probably used it more than he did writing. You know, we'd see a movie or something and I'd come home and write, I guess, what amounts to fan fiction uh, uh, with the characters and um, imitate the styles of the books that I enjoyed. So, yeah, definitely. So what what would you say to this point is your proudest moment as a writer? The creative nonfiction, (laughs) uh, just publication in there and the the prize would be up there. Um, But actually, one of my favorite moments and proudest moments is um, writing and delivering a eulogy for my grandfather's funeral. Huh. And when, when was that? That was in 1997. And um, he, my brother and I, my brother wrote a song <laughs> that we performed. And then, um, yeah, I wrote it just, it, it was at that time, to me felt like the most cohesive thing I had read and or written and read in public. So what did your grandfather mean to you? Um, he, so he was a carpenter. He was a handyman kind of guy and he was very honest and hardworking and he lived about six hours from where I grew up and he and my grandmother would come to almost anything that my brother and I had, um, like we were in plays or when we graduated, we had certain, um, events going on. They would come to those. And then my grandpa would come in the summer and kind of help us renovate our house. Basically every, every summer kind of (laughs) focus on a project. And so just the sort of being involved with extended family, being supportive, um, always coming to show, support and interest in what we were doing and his ability to, to do those home renovation projects uh, was like magic to me. I'm so not mechanical. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so what he could do, you know, it's like, how can anybody do that? And I would just watch him and, and um, be fascinated and highly impressed by what he could do. And the way he approached his work, did that help inform you in the work that you do now? Probably the the sticking with it part, for sure. Um, but I have kind of thought about this, you know, the kind of worker or the approach that he took or somebody who is kind of working with something hands-on. I mean, it is an art in a way, but there's, there's a tangible quality and a goal that you, you know, when it's fixed. Um, and sometimes I wish that's the kind of work that I did (laughs) because writing is so not like that. Um, especially with this, you know, kind of personal essay or creative nonfiction writing. It's so subjective much of the time that you can never know if it needs fixing or if it just didn't land in the right lap. But exactly. with but with craftsmanship of some nature, you build a t- it, it. Yeah, there are some nuance to say building a table, but by and large, if it stands upright and doesn't wobble, well, there right. you go. <laughs> right, right. 
What was the uh, and and it could have been the the eulogy you you presented at your grandfather's funeral. Um, but what was the the biggest validation you received in your early years that gave you confidence that you could write and tell stories as a vocation? Yeah. Um, so actually, as a senior in high school. Um, I, the English teacher, I went to a very small school, so we all had the same senior English teacher and she was wonderful. Um, you know, but she nominated my writing for a state award and that was, that kind of made me think for the first time I could do this for somebody besides myself. (laughs) Um, so that, that moment stands out to me that it, it, it's kind of clicked that, even though I had wanted to be a writer all my life, I, I kind of thought real people don't do that. Right. So, so yeah. So that was, that was the moment when I thought, oh yeah, maybe, maybe I could. Well, yeah. That, that maybe that was the moment where you, you, and then like subsequently your, your English teacher, like gave yourself permission to per- pursue it. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And I, that seems to be kind of a recursive process of, okay, I'm giving myself permission. Like right now I'm giving myself permission to write fiction, which I have, you know, told myself I'm not good at doing that for off and on for years. So, but yeah, I have to give myself permission to, to say, well, it's not, it may not go anywhere, but I'm going to write it anyway. And what was that piece of writing that your English teacher uh, nominated? Do you remember? I do. That was a poem inspired by a T.S. Eliot poem. And I, I don't actually write poetry at this point, but um, it was a narrative poem. So it had, you know, the, the elements of story that I'm drawn to. And then the language, like I said, the um, that was, I think, the part that got it nominated, the use of language. And what did being a successful writer look like when you were in college versus where you are now with several published credits and being a working writer? Yeah. Um, so I I kind of always thought, well, I'll know that I'm a writer when I write a book and I haven't done that still. (laughs) So, (laughs) so in college that, uh, that would have been kind of the definition for me. And since then it's, setting publication in different venues as a goal, um, being, having a piece that means a lot to me published eventually, you know, that I I set more project specific goals or publication specific goals, um, in terms of, you know, the venue for publication and just if I can do it (laughs) and continue to, make some kind of a living, you know, with the kind of writing that pays too is a little different, but, um, but just to be able to continue to do that is success. And it's not so much as, as, um, being like I thought as a college student, somebody who's written a book and is known for having written a book, um, you know, that, that isn't so important to me anymore. And I do want to write a book still, but, um, I don't think that defines me as a writer at this point. And how do you process, say, the the new year and the goals for keeping your the writing vocation afloat and m- ensuring that you're sort of creatively fulfilled, but you're also doing the kind of nuts and bolts things that allow you to 
to keep doing it for the long term. Yeah. Um, I always start, I do kind of a visual mapping thing at the beginning of every year uh, with sort of do a grid on a big piece of paper and throw the the projects that are at the back of my mind or in some some draft form, each of those into a, a square and then um, make little notes on, you know, what's kind of the most compelling to me right now, what could be another step in that process. And so then when I do on the weekend work on something, it's, it's the one that's I've identified as, you know, closest to done or the, I see an opportunity to refine it and submit it to a certain place or, you know, so the beginning of the year, I kind of put it in visual form. And then the writing that pays the bills is kind of, that's fallen into a little more of a schedule. It's, it's the nine to five, you know, kind of working time. So that's always going on. And I try to fit the other writing into the evenings and weekends and, and use that visual mapping as a way to organize my thinking about it. I, uh, there's, I think there's a quote from Tony Robbins who once said, he's like, we tend to overestimate what we can do in one year, but we underestimate what we can do in 10. And, um, uh, I wonder like, are, how do you see yourself long-term? Like in, in the, in the span of 10 years, what would you like to, to see your name on? Hmm. I think a collection of essays, um, and a novel, I would like to write a novel. So 10 years, that seems <laughs> I probably could do that in 10 years. <laughs> Very nice. And uh, and where, where can people find you online, Kim? Um, I'm at kimkankowitz.com. Okay. And are you on uh, any of the other socials or is it just, just your website? No, I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm, I'm pretty silent on Twitter, but I do have an account. It's at Kim Probable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I, I just have a personal Facebook page at this point, but sure. Yep. Fantastic. Well, Kim, congratulations on, on winning the essay prize. It's, it's, it's a great story. I've read it twice already. I'll probably read it again very soon. And, um, Thank yeah. You. And thanks so much for carving out some time in your morning and, uh, to come on the show. Sure. Thanks for asking me, Brandon. I, it was fun talking with you. Oh, fantastic. Thanks so much. And we'll be in touch. I'm sure. Okay. Sounds All right. good. All right. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye.